This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's passage is Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation that for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. Amen. Uh, Has anyone here ever had a a near-death experience in the water, Uh, in particular the the ocean? If uh, any of you guys have, you guys know just how terrifying and scary that experience can be. I remember uh, one day being at the beach, and I saw two maybe 20-something-year-old uh, guys playing around in the water, and they were fairly strong swimmers. They were athletic. Uh, they were just all over the place having a good time. Uh, and I looked up, and all of a sudden, I see one of them start to flail their arms, and, and they start kind of going underneath and up and down, and I realized that he was on the brink of drowning. And whatever was happening to him, his friends started to panic as well. And so these strong, seemingly strong swimmers who are out in the water um, they, they're both starting to, to freak out. And I see one of them uh, actually start to hold on to the other and push them down to try to keep himself alive. Both of them were in an utter state of panic. Well, the lifeguard was able to get out there, um, have them hang on to those, those little buoy thingies. I'm not sure what they're called. And, and the lifeguard uh, started to bring him in. And the lifeguard must have swam about no more than 15 or 20 feet until he sat them, he had them stand up on solid ground. And so um, these guys, and he asked them, are you guys okay to walk back? And they're like, yeah, we're okay. And these guys were embarrassed. <laughs> you could see in their expression. If they were just not panicking and if they had analyzed the situation correctly, all they really needed to do was about swim 15, 20 feet, and they would be safe. But instead, they were stricken with panic. This is sort of the picture that happens to us in our suffering. When we go through difficult times in our lives, when those trials come, it causes us to panic, causes us to be a little bit irrational. We'll do things that we normally wouldn't do, we'll say things we won't normally say, and we'll forget things that we normally remember. Today, Paul picks up where we left off in last week's verse, where he talks about the suffering that comes in a Christian's life. Let me read verse 17 for us. And it says, if we are children, we are then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
If you recall, in the beginning verses, the first 17 verses of chapter 8, Paul starts off with these amazing promises of what life in the Spirit is like. These promises given to the believer that there's no condemnation, that we're being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit speaks of our adoption and assures us that we have been justified, that we are God's children, and that the Holy Spirit also secures our inheritance the eternal glory that awaits us in heaven. And then he pivots to talk about suffering. Why does Paul go from these mountaintops of these wonderful promises to the dark valleys of suffering and pain that we face in this life? He's giving us an honest picture of what the Christian life really is. That though we have the promises of God, that they are ours, they are not fully realized yet. We haven't attained them in full, and we still journey through this broken world with our sinful bodies, and as a result, there is suffering and trials in our lives. And today, he wants to encourage us not to panic, not to freak out, not to lose heart in the midst of our suffering. And he does this by taking our eyes off of our suffering and having them look to the promises given to us, the glory that is to come the glory that we will share with Christ. And before we continue, let's take a moment to think about God's glory. Admittedly, it's a a very in-depth, complex topic to talk about, but if I could just simply summarize it for you. um, As an attribute of God, God's glory is referred to primarily as his majesty, his radiant beauty, his splendor, his magnificence, and his preeminence. It's the high honor that God has. As an ethical concept, it also embraces God's holiness, that he's completely set apart from us. God's glory is also referred to his presence, that he is a shining light. Christ is referred to as the morning star, a bright shining light. And God's glory, as we see in the Old Testament, is also a bright flaming fire. And as God's children, when eternity comes, when Christ returns, we will not only enter into God's presence for eternity, we will enter his glory. And that glory of God's will be shared with us. It will be bestowed upon us. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, expresses it like this. Glory as brightness, splendor, luminosity. We are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun. God's splendor, majesty, beauty, radiance, all day, that will be shared with us. And so the promise of glory is a central idea of today's passage. And we'll work through today's message with these three points. The longing for glory, the weight of glory, and the hope of glory. The longing, the weight, and the hope. So the longing of glory, longing for glory. I want to uh, start this point off with asking you guys two questions. How do you make sense of the suffering that you experience in this life? And two, what is your heart truly yearning for in the midst of those sufferings? How do you make sense of your suffering? And what are you longing for during those times of suffering? In, two, in, today's, passages, in today's passage, Paul is going to describe the current condition of the world that we live in and the current condition of ourselves to answer these questions. Paul says in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing 
And then in verse 20, he says, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Here is speaking of creation, all of creation minus humans. So we're talking the sun, moon, stars, oceans, all the animals, everything God has created except us. And he says that creation is longing for the day of redemption. He says creation was subjected to futility, meaning that creation right now is not serving the purpose and for which God intended it. What Paul is doing is referring to Genesis 3 here and the curse that came with sin. Let's look at verse, uh, Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and, the, and to dust you shall return. Creation is all out of whack. It's not in doing its intended purpose of which God created it for. The decay and destruction and devastation we see happening in creation it's all a product of the sin that entered into the world through Adam. Paul is personifying creation here and saying that it waits with eagerness to show just how great that day will be when Christ comes and restores not only us, but creation itself. But it's not just creation that was cursed. It was man as well. We were affected by the fall. It brought enmity between us and God, but not just between us and God, with each other as well. All our relationships have been affected by it. And sin has brought death, decay, disease into our bodies. It threw everything out of order. Suffering is a product of the sin that entered the world. And we just can't downplay how evil and how destructive sin is. Many of us, many of us might have lost the understanding of this reality of suffering as a consequence of the fall. This is the perspective, the framework that we should look at the suffering in our lives. This is how we make sense of it, that it's a result, it's a product of sin, something that was not supposed to be coming into God's creation. And just as creation groans, Paul says that we as believers, we are groaning too. We who have been given the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption. What he's saying is that we as believers who have the Holy Spirit in us, there is a recognition and there's a grieving over the sin in our lives. There's a grieving over the sin that we see in this world as we wrestle with our addictions, as we wrestle with doing the things that we shouldn't do and not doing the things that we should do, seeing the pain and the consequence and devastation that sin brings into the world, we grow. We groan, just like a mother would in the pains of childbirth, as Paul uses this analogy. In a mother in childbirth, the pain is real, it's severe, but they are not endless. It only lasts for a time. And neither is that pain hopeless. It's filled with joyful expectation of a new child. And so as believers, we do groan with the pains from the suffering of our, and, and the sin in this world, but it's not without hope. We groan with expectation of the promise of the life that is to come, the inheritance of sharing God's glory with Christ. 
Life in the spirit means we have a longing to be released from our sinful bodies and the sinful world that we live in. It's putting our hope in that promise. And so how, how does having this mindset help us? How is it practical, how we can apply it to our daily lives? Having an understanding that our suffering is a result from sin and that we ourselves are longing for restoration. We are longing for God's glory. One, we will not be surprised when things go wrong in this life. Some of us have uh, understanding of our lives and what happens in this, in this way where I'm a good person. I, I generally do good. And so when these bad things happen to me, I'm not quite sure why it's happening to me. It's this kind of karmic understanding of the universe that you know, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. But that's not the way the Bible teaches. That's not our frame of reference or understanding for our suffering, but understanding that it is a result from sin. Two, you will not place your ultimate hope in anyone or anything. If you're putting your hope in something that's been created, whether it be a thing or a person, to put your hope in something that has been marred and broken by sin is futile. It will leave you disappointed. We are longing not for a glory that's in people or things, but we're longing for a glory that can only be found in God, where there is perfection, where there is goodness, and it is only found in God. C.S. Lewis, uh, in The Weight of Glory, uh, I'm going to quote him as he speaks to this, where we are searching for glory. He says, the books or the music, and he uses these two books or music in which we can find glory and splendor, but fill in that blank with anything that you are putting your hope in, that you're trying to find goodness or the answer to your suffering in. Whatever that is, we thought that we thought the beauty was located, wait, sorry, let me rephrase. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. As we live in a broken world, we're looking for something that is better, something that is good, and something that is perfect. And many times we try to find it in things that have been created, in things creation that God has created, but our ultimate longing, our ultimate hope is only in God's glory, where there's perfect goodness and perfect perfection. And finally, third is you will keep your eyes on Jesus. Having this understanding of suffering, it will help you keep your eyes on justice, on Jesus. Grieving increases as you grow as a Christian. As you, year after year, as you walk with the Lord, you will notice that you will be increasingly sensitive to the sin in your lives and the sin in this world. And this understanding, this recognition should not bring you into despair, but what it does, it gives you a better understanding of the cross. As the years go by and you feel the weight of your sin more and more, as you become more aware of it, the sweeter the cross becomes to you. Jesus is our hope. He's the only way. And in him, there is glory. So as we live in this world with suffering, in this broken world, hold on to him. Turn your eyes to him. Because in him, he is the only way. 
Um, C.S. Lewis, this is the last time I'm going to refer to him today, uh, but I just really was digging C.S. Lewis this week. C.S. Lewis developed this idea of this tension that we live in, of living in a broken world and living in broken bodies uh, in his first of the Narnia Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you read this book, you may recall in the, in the first book, Narnia, uh, the land was under the power of the wicked witch of the north. And because it was under her power, the land was in a state of perpetual winter. Miserable, cold winter, life was not thriving, and spring never came. But when Aslan, the lion, died and rose again, which is a picture of Christ's resurrection, the ice began to melt, the flowers began to bloom, the trees turned green, and an eternal spring was brought into existence. Using that image, we can say that the creation is in a, right now is in a perpetual state of winter, but it groans and looks forward to that eternal spring that is to come. And we too live in the winters of suffering, longing for the beauty of spring, longing for the promise that God has given us. And that spring will ever be compared, worth comparing to the winter that we experience in this world. Which brings us to our next point, the weight of glory. The weight of glory. Look down, look down with me and read verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying, if you realize the magnitude of where you're heading after this life, just how great and amazing that glory that is promised to us you wouldn't even compare your current sufferings to it. The weight of the glorious inheritance is far greater than the weight of our suffering. And let's not forget who's penning these words right now. This is the Apostle Paul who was intimately familiar with suffering. He was beaten, whipped, lashed 195 times, reviled, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, imprisoned. Paul had a PhD in suffering. He was an expert. He knew it through and through. Paul doesn't give us these words as he's writing from a mansion, driving, you know, flying around his private jet on these mission trips. He's writing it to us as one who is in the thick of it, who's experienced it over and over again. He's, like, he's not telling us, it's going to be all right, just be patient. No, he tells us that there's something far more glorious ahead of us. And he shares a similar idea in 2 Corinthians 4.17. It says this, For this light, momentary affliction, the beatings, the stonings, the, the imprisonments, all of it, he considers a light, momentary affliction, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I want us to imagine one of those old-fashioned scales where you, you put a weight on one side and you, pay, you put whatever else you want to measure on the other side. What Paul is saying here is on one side, I'm going to put my beatings, my lashings, uh, my stonings, the shipwrecks, all of it on one side. And on the other side, I'm going to put the weight of the promise that is given, that is given to me, the glory that is going to be mine as I share it with Christ in heaven. And he says, these sufferings, they're just a couple feathers compared to the freight train when you weigh it against each other. It does not compare. It does not register on the scale. 
But the thing is, when we live in this life and we go through our sufferings, what tends to happen in our hearts and our minds is we tip the scales the other way. Financial problems, job problems, relational problems, health problems, whatever it is you're going through right now that's causing your heart to suffer, it feels like this, way, this is far more greater. It weighs far more heavier than the glory that is to come to us. That's the reality of what we're living in as we travel through this broken world. And I struggle with this all the time as well. To try to not let the pains and the inconvenience and suffering of this life consume me and outweigh the promises that God has given me. And this isn't to dismiss anyone's pain. This isn't a call for us to be uh, ignorant and just kind of put it aside and not recognize it. But it's to take our eyes off of it and see the promises of God. To realize the sufferings that we do go through this, in this life is not the end of the story. It does not get the final say. What lies ahead of us is an eternal glory that is un- imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But when you're in it, it's hard. The pain is real. It's hard not to focus on the situation. It's, not, it's hard not to focus on yourself. But that's what Paul encourages us to do. Take our eyes off of it for a moment and look to God's promises. This is what we need to do if we're not going to lose heart through our trials. Paul says here in verse 18, for I consider, for I consider. It's this idea of remember, think about, reason and conclude. Remember, think about, reason and conclude. And he uses this other times in Romans as well. He says, consider that you are justified by faith apart from your works. Remember, think about, reason and conclude that your salvation is a complete free gift from God, not based on your merit. Later he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Remember, think, reason, conclude that your life has been given to you through Jesus' death and resurrection, that you're a new creation now. And conclude now that you should live for him. And he says again today, consider that your present sufferings, remember, think, reason, conclude that the weight of glory that's promised to you is far greater than the sufferings that you're experiencing now. Do not lose heart. Do not give up. So if you want to tip the scales back to the right place, what we need to do is consider to remember, to think about, to reason and conclude God's promises, that they are true and that they are for us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this to encourage his congregation. The great reality is the glory that is coming. Hold on to this idea that we do not really belong to this present age, that our citizenship is in heaven. This present world is passing, transient, temporary. The world to come is the real, the permanent world. Church, I encourage you to consider the promises God has given you as you go through your suffering. The weight of his glory that he will share with you does not compare to the light 
momentary afflictions that we go through in this life. As we consider, this, will, that is what will give us hope. Hope. And brings us to our last point of today's message. The hope of glory. Look down with me as we read Romans 8, 23 to 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul uses this phrase, for in this hope we were saved. And what Paul is um, laying out for us in these verses is this idea of the Christian living in a already but not yet state. That we have already been given God's promises, they are ours, but we have not yet received the fulfillment of all these promises. That yes, we are saved, but blessings that are promised to us, they are to come. And so he says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Recall last week, we, we learned that we are and we have been adopted as God's children. But what he's saying here is not that oh, we're waiting for that to happen, is but we are waiting for the full inheritance, the full promise of being God's children to come in eternity. And then he mentions oh, the redemption of our bodies. He says we are free from condemnation, that we are, are free from the penalty of sin, but we still live in these sinful bodies. And so therefore now we look forward to the day where God promises us we will be resurrected with perfected bodies. We look forward with hope. We are in already but not yet state. And as we live in this tension of already and not yet, the Holy Spirit is given to us to give us a reminder that we have received God's promises and that we will also inherit the fullness of those promises later on. The Holy Spirit guarantees that for us. Paul refers to the, the Spirit as the first fruits in this passage, the first fruits. And this is synonymous with the word pledge. We have received the pledge of the Spirit. What did Jesus promise us before he ascended to heaven? That he would give us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a pledge of the promises of God, and it's the first before the rest come to us. So as you live in the Holy Spirit, or live your life with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, it serves as a reminder and assurance that the rest of God's promises that he lays out for us in Scripture, all of them are yours. All of them. If you've been given the Spirit, you're not going to be given just half of God's promises or, or three quarters, but all of it. And it's guaranteed to you as you live in the Spirit. And so you hold on to hope that God will fulfill his promises. And you wait with patience and endurance through the winter of suffering. Now, this hope that we have as Christians is not a hope of a possible event to come, that we're hoping that it doesn't rain tomorrow, I hope we get our, I get the job interview. No, but it's a hope that is incredibly different from any hope that we are given. It's an absolute, unchangeable hope that we have in Christ. Because the promises of God are absolute. 
in God, there is no lie. He is unchangeable. There is no shadow of doubt. And so we can hold on to what he says as we go through our winters. I want us to um, think in your mind. Don't say it out loud. What is your net worth? What is your net worth? Now, just imagine you put your entire, all, everything you have, your assets, everything. And um, let's just say for the, for the scenario that it's about $10,000. You say your net worth is $10,000. And imagine one day you get, uh, as you're getting out of a cab in Itaewon, a motorcycle is flying by and you open the door and, and it creates an accident. Totally an accident. But uh, what happened to the, uh, at the driver is he's incredibly injured. He goes into the hospital and now you owe. Insurance only covers so much and you owe $10,000 for this accident. Your entire worth, entire savings, everything, just gone in a minute. Now, let's say that exact same happened, the same thing happened to someone who had the same equal net worth. But the difference between you and that person is that you have an incredibly rich uncle and, uh, he, who just passed and who has promised his estate to you. And it's just in the process of going through all the legal, legal paperwork, but you know that in a couple months' time, you have ton of money coming to you. That's your situation. But this other person, they've lost their, net save, their, their life savings and they have nothing left. Now, how would you guys, what would be the difference in the way you react to this situation? For you, who has this inheritance coming to you, you would be able to wait patiently and you'd be able to endure the inconveniences, right? You'd be okay with going to your friend's house and couch surfing for a couple months asking people to help uh, make you meals, and just going to your friends for general help until you receive that inheritance. You'd be able to endure the inconvenience and the pain and the suffering that comes from what just happened. But to, the, to that other person who doesn't have that, what would their response to the situation be? Filled with fear and panic, anxiety, stress. It's very much the attitude that we can go through this life. We know that we are inheriting something so much far greater that gives us the ability to endure and wait and be patient through the winters of our suffering. That's the effect of the hope of God's promises in our lives. We hold on to them for strength to endure. Though we may be ridiculed for our faith, though we feel the pain and the weight of our sin, though we struggle through this life, we are given a hope that assures us and strengthens us until Christ comes back and brings us into his glory. Now, Revelation describes this eternal spring that is to come for us. And I'll read that for you. It's in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In this passage, we see the spring described to us in two different ways. It's described to us in a way that we can relate to and understand because that's our experience right now. We experience death, mourning, crying, and pain. But when that spring comes, Scripture tells us that death will be no more. Mourning will be no more. Crying will be no more. Pain will be no more. But it also describes the spring in ways that we can't fully understand yet. There will be a new heaven and a new earth coming. And God will dwell with us. And we will dwell with him in the fullness of his presence. And the glory of God will shine forth infinitely with no end in sight. And we'll be able to stand there in that presence and not be burned away because we will be found blameless. We will be found righteous. And that is only because of what Christ has done for us. Christ came and he suffered in this world. He came down and he was mocked, he was rejected, he was despised. And then when he was about to go to the cross, he was beaten, he was scoffed at, he was ridiculed. And they put him on that cross and he was the sinless son of God. He suffered a pain far greater than we could ever understand. Oh, that's also that he could redeem us and make us God's children. And as he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, he claimed his prize, the glory of the Father. It was what he accomplished and what he earned. He freely shares that and gives that to us as his children the glory that we long for, the release from this broken world and our sin is found in Christ, in Christ our Lord. He is our salvation and he is our only hope. Let us pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.